Eschaton. Well, praise the Lord and welcome back to Eschaton. This is Eschaton episode number 15. I know it's been a solid break. I think it's been about two months since we've been back in the studio for this podcast in particular, but uh, we're going to be hitting the ground running. Amen. And so if you have missed previous episodes, we will uh, link to and recommend the previous episodes that have all the context leading up to what we're going to cover today. If you want to turn with me, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 24, verses 40 through 42, just a little snippet, but we'll have plenty to talk about for sure. And uh, of previous episodes, of course, we covered everything uh, coming up to this point, so I'm not going to belabor any kind of context. We're going to keep on moving, and uh, we highly recommend you go back and listen to prior episodes to catch up to where we are today. This episode is going to be titled, One Taken, One Left. And as I mentioned earlier, we are in Matthew chapter 24, verses 40 through 42. Matthew chapter 24, verses 40 through 42. All right. So, of course, what we're going to cover today, just as a quick rundown, we're going to read through the passage, we're going to talk about our cross-references, we'll talk about some context, we'll talk about literature, characters, the words in the passage, what academia has to say about it, we'll summarize it, and then we'll give a little bit of an application. And this is the format we'll be using from now on with particular uh, exegesis going through passages, just to make sure we're consistent and that we're covering everything we can as we go through these passages. All right, so let's read Matthew chapter 24, verses 40 through 42. It says, Then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken, and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken, and the other left. Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. Of course, we do have a parallel passage for this. The parallel gospel is in Luke chapter 17, verses 34 through 36. He says, I tell you in that night, there shall be two men in one bed, the one shall be taken and the other shall be left. Two women shall be grinding together, the one shall be taken and the other left. Two men shall be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. All right, so we don't actually don't have any Old Testament cross-references here. These are just a few verses, and Jesus, as he's stating this in the Olivet Discourse, did not have any specific cross-references that I could find as far as New Testament usage of Old Testament. So we're going to move on past that and just talk about our context of the passage altogether. Now, of course, this is in Matthew chapter 24. The full context is the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, starting in verse 1, all the way through the Matthew 25, verse 46. So really, Matthew 24 and 25 together is the full context. However, I did notice something interesting as I was going back through here, and uh, we're going to hop over to Matthew 24, starting in verse 15. Matthew 24, starting in verse 15. This is where he talks about the abomination of desolation. And the reason I'm pulling this up is because it is actually a parallel concept here where he's talking about people being in the field and then this event happening. But I wanted to make mention of it to show that there is a difference here. This is not the same event as the return of Jesus Christ, and uh, the things that go on are slightly different. So if we hop over to Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, it says, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house, neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. So there he's talking specifically about the period of time known as the Great Tribulation, starting off with the Abomination of Desolation event, and then going on for a period of time after that. 
the difference between that event and the time of the return of Jesus Christ, as mentioned in verses 40 through 42, the key difference really is the ability to run from tribulation here in verse 18, neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. So human that's in the field has the opportunity to run to get away from this tribulation that he's speaking of in these verses. However, in verse 40, the event is is flipped a little on its head. It's a different type of event, of course. Most people refer to it as the rapture. I'm going to keep referring to it as the return of Jesus Christ, since that's what he references. That's how he references it himself in this passage, is his return, him coming back for his people. But here, there is no opportunity to get away from or to escape this event. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 15 through 22, there is mentioned specifically a command, a reminder to run away so that you're not caught up in what is going on in the ensuing aftermath of the abomination of death and those events. However, when we get down to verse 40 through 42, these events take everyone by surprise. And of course, we've talked a little bit about it in the past episode, uh, as you mentioned in verse 38, 39, as the days of Noah, you know, everyone gets caught up in this thing that happens, the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus's return is surprises everyone. Two are in the field, but in this ch- in this chance, or, or in this opportunity, there is no opportunity. There, there, There's one taken and the other one is left behind. Of course, two women as well mentioned, one taken and the other left behind. So there is a distinct difference here between these events. I want to make sure that's very abundantly clear. One of the key phrase or concepts that came up in this passage as I was studying it out is this idea of the millstone or the mill grinder. It's a grinder for meal. It was composed of two circular stones, one set inside the other. If you're watching this on YouTube or Facebook or somewhere, you can see the image I've got here. I'll have another image that comes up later as well. And it's basically exactly what it sounds like. There's two circular stones, almost like wheels on their sides, one on top of the other. And there's a hole through the middle where the grain gets poured in. And then somebody, typically a woman, a woman or a slave or a servant, would sit on either side turning this apparatus. Uh, the nether stone, as it's called, the stone that's on the bottom, was extremely sturdy. We're going to jump over to Job chapter 41 and then verse 40, verse 24, Job 41 verse 24, and take a look what he says there. He says, his heart is as firm as a stone, yea, as hard as a piece of the nether millstone. So here Job's referencing someone's heart being hard, that he uh, cannot be moved, and then it says that his it's hard as a piece of nether millstone. In other words, that nether millstone is extremely dense, extremely hard, and it was used as a reference point for those kind of things in cultural context. Uh, on either side of it, as I mentioned, two women or possibly slaves or servants would sit and they would turn this apparatus. We see that mentioned in Exodus chapter 11 as well. Exodus chapter 11, starting in verse number four. He says, Moses said, thus saith the Lord about midnight when I go out into into the midst of Egypt and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon his throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill and all the firstborn of beasts. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall be like it anymore. And here he's talking, of course, about this plague killing off the firstborn. What's interesting is that he mentions the maidservant behind the mill. So this is obviously a, a typical part of culture, a typical cultural context there about the mill and the millstone. Just as a little more information on that, the work, of course, done with the milling was done typically in the early morning or the evening prior to the day to prepare for the next day. Uh, The sound that it would make, you know, that grinding sound as it's grinding and spinning around would notify the whole household. Everyone would hear this, you know, as the grinding is going, that all was well, right? Because if there's meal, if there's food, then things are going well. Food will be provided. Food is on the way. It was often accompanied by the women singing. Uh, This is mentioned in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and starting in verse number one. 
He says, remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. When the sun, while the sun or the light or the moon or stars be not darkened, or the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house shall tremble, and the strong men shall bow themselves, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those that look out of the windows be darkened, and the doors shall be shut in the streets, when the sound of the grinding is low, and he shall rise up at the voice of the bird, and all the daughters of music shall be brought low." Here we see, of course, as as many have commented, this is a picture of old age. It's also it seems to have some prophetic implications as well, but it's also talking about just life and the changes that go throughout it. But you see here that this time of uh, sadness or tiredness as things are winding down, things are not the way they should be anymore. We see that strong men are bowing themselves. The grinders cease because there are few. Of course, this could be referencing your teeth or it could be referencing the millstone itself in the physical object that the grinders... There's not enough people to turn this millstone anymore, so grinding is not happening. Verse 4, he talks about uh, the sound of grinding is low, so it's it's reduced. There's not as much grinding going on. There's not as much food being prepared or produced, and the daughters of music shall be brought low. Uh, it's also mentioned in 2 Samuel 19, verse 35, and then in Jeremiah 25, verses 8 through 11, that uh, this idea that grinding of the meal, grinding of the mill, was accompanied very often by the women singing, of course, to keep themselves on task, to keep themselves awake, to uh, pass the time as they were carrying out this job. It was, of course, a kind of a lowly part of life, but definitely necessary. Lamentations chapter 5, verse 13 references this, as well as Judges chapter 16 and verse number 21. Let's hop over there. Judges 16 and verse 21. But the Philistines took him and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with fetters of brass, and he did grind in the prison house. This is, of course, referring to Samson. Just a little tidbit here. Most often you will see Samson depicted because of the idea of him being strong and him being a man and all of that. They show him uh, pushing a large apparatus that turns around. Uh, that's something that's typically pulled by a mule or something. However, more likely than not, with the way these cultures were built and the way these things happened, this this was not just a position for manual labor for someone lowly, but it was also specifically for women or servants who were not extremely strong. It was just something that took some some effort, but took a, a while. It was laborious, but it was just, it was not necessarily that they were pushing large things around. In fact, that's why they had two of them is so that they could trade off turning this apparatus. So in that context, this this time when Samson was brought low and was brought into this position of being in chains and grinding in the prison house, he was probably doing something similar to this uh, so that he was just using doing something that was reduced to the most lowly servant or the most lowly person would be able to accomplish. So he was brought low physically and uh, mentally during this time. Millstones, of course, as we mentioned, were very solid. They're useful as a weapon if necessary. This happens in Judges chapter 10, verses 50 through 55. Someone gets a millstone dropped on their head and they die. Second Samuel chapter 18, uh, verses 21. Uh, this also is a reference point for heavy weight. Christ himself in Matthew chapter 18, let's jump over to Matthew 18. He references a millstone in verse number, starting verse one, uh, the disciples came into Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He calls a little child unto him, set him in the midst of them. Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted, become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. All right, so this, this idea of the millstone being heavy and being solid. Uh, if I haven't mentioned it already, the word millstone or the word mill in the scriptures is the Greek word uh, mulon, 
and it, it comes from the base of another word that has the idea of hardship, a mill or a grinder. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about it in a few minutes as we talk about words in this passage. All right, so we have this millstone. It's heavy, it's dense, it's strong. It was never to be pawned or pledged. This is another interesting concept here. In Deuteronomy 24, verse 6, part of the law, it's mentioned that it would take away your literal daily bread. If you got rid of your millstone, you would no longer be able to grind meal and no longer be able to continue making life, making life happen, because your your ability to manufacture bread would be completely gone, and that was an integral part of survival and life itself. So it's a very key thing. It was always around. You would always hear it. Again, it was, it was just as you hear children playing in the streets or a dog barking or whatever it is you would also hear mills grinding at people's homes in the afternoon or evening or possibly in the morning so this is very much a very common normal part of life so that's why when jesus references here in matthew 24 that there's men in the field which is they're gathering right the meal they're gathering wheat whatever it is they are doing the actual harvesting they're doing the actual work in the field there's also at the same time women doing the work daily every day happenings are going on in the home. So in other words, when this event happens of the return of Jesus Christ, these things are very normal. They're very, they're very, nobody is expecting it. Nobody is anticipating what is at, what is about to happen. I want also want to jump over to Revelation chapter 18, verses 21 through 24, just as another point of reference with the millstone showing up in Scripture. You may have already thought of this in reference to prophetic things. Revelation 18, of course, is talking about the end times. And verse 21, starting verse 21, it's talking about Babylon here. The destruction of Babylon, Babylon being brought low, and we see a millstone involved here as well. Matthew, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 18, starting verse 21, a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. And the voice of harpers and musicians and of pipers and trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in thee, and no craftsman or whatsoever craft he be shall be found any more in thee, and the sound of a millstone shall be heard no more at all in thee. Here we see again, it's it's destroyed, it is brought low, life is no longer happening because millstones milling in, in that meal is no longer happening. Verse 23, the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in thee, and the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee. For thy merchants were the great men of the earth, for by thy sorceries were all nations deceived, and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. And uh, that's also talked about in Isaiah chapter 47, verses 1 through 5. Again, this idea of the millstone and the mill being a daily part of life and the changes that happen and the sign that a millstone stopping when it ceases, that's a sign that something is majorly wrong in a city or in a group of people. All right, let's hop over to our literature then as we define the literature of this passage, Matthew chapter 24, verses 40 through 42. Uh, we see that it's obviously in the Gospels, so it is definitely a part of the Gospels. The Gospels uh, are typically or all the Gospels, excuse me, are, are the life of Jesus as depicted through the eyewitness of the disciples. So the authors of the Gospels were either present themselves during these events or repeating information from those who were present. We've talked about that with the context of the book of Matthew. This was a compilation of information that he received from others about, um, as well as his own uh, eyewitness of these events. It's also, obviously, as since we're talking about in our eschatology study, it's a prophetic passage. It's information typically relayed by a vision or a dream, although in this, in this portion, it's Jesus himself telling them directly, which is part of the reason why it's such an integral passage to eschatology. Jesus himself is saying this out loud in the presence of other people, so there is n n very little chance for misinterpreting what is going on because 
he says it very directly. Uh, it's about future events from the perspective of the characters involved. Very often prophetic messages, of course, in the Old Testament were warnings to, to repent, meaning they're not necessarily guaranteed to pass. So a lot of times when you hear the word prophecy or prophetic or a prophet, everyone understands it as, hey, this is the future being told. It is not necessarily a future that will happen, although in this case it is, the way Jesus presents this information, it's things that are going to happen. Very often prophetic messages in the Old Testament, such as when Jonah shows up to Nineveh, were messages of warning saying, hey, this is a prophetic word of what will happen unless you change, unless you relent, unless you repent and change the way you're living right now. This is what is going to happen. This is the path you are on. So they are talking about future events either way. Let's take a glance at the characters in this passage in Matthew 24. We've got these workers going on, we've got the women at the mill, and of course we've got the Lord. And of course, there's not a ton of extra information given here. We've already talked about it a little bit, but I just wanted to highlight that these are the only characters we see in these verses. There are some men, presumably workers, it says, two in the field. There's two women. You'll notice that women is in italics, meaning that it is an added word in English. However, based on the cultural context and everything we know about mills and grinding, uh, this being women is more than likely who was act would actually be grinding at the mill and that he's referencing in there. So adding the word women in there is not an, a, an extra additive to there. It's just a little more definitive of who these two people are grinding at the mill. Of course, in verse 42, he says, watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. Here, the word Lord, we'll talk about in just a moment as well, is obviously referring to Jesus and he's referring to himself as the whole passage is talking about. All right, let's, let's look into our words a little bit then. I love doing the word studies and we grabbed a, a little information from these words. The word field, as we see in verse number uh, 40, is from the Greek, the Greek word agros. It is a field, a drive for cattle. It means the, uh, the country, a farm, hamlet, country, farm, piece of ground, a piece of land. Uh, it also shows up in Matthew chapter 6, verses 28 through 30, Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30, Luke chapter 2, verse 8. Let's hop over and look at that then and see a little more context there. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, there we have the word, keeping watch over their flock by night. And there's our word for agros, or it's actually a uh, derivative of that that is agroleo. And so the idea is this, it's exactly what it sounds like, a field. Okay, so that's that's what's being talked about here when he says there were two in the field, there were two people in the field, right? Or there will be, excuse me, because he's referring to the future, of course. Um, the reason, part of the reason I get so, I, I harp so much on a lot of these words and these, de and these definitions get so specific is because when it comes to prophetic uh, concepts, people like adding in all kinds of mess, all kinds of nonsense and saying, well, the field represents this, that, or the other. If Jesus wanted to say it was something else, he would have said as much. He says very specifically, and the fact that he uses two different examples of daily life happening, men working in the field, women working at the mill, shows that that is the context of what he's talking about. This word is also referenced in John 4, 35. John chapter 4, verse number 35, where it says, Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. That's our word again, for um, they are white already to harvest. All right, so this word field shows up multiple times to do with this idea of a, a field of work, a field of harvest. Taken. Taken is another word, and I've got a whole other episode we're, get, we're working on of specifically about this idea of the rapture itself. But the word taken here in this passage is the word paralambano, para which comes from two other words. It means to receive near, to associate with oneself. 
uh, by analogy, to assume an office figuratively to learn, to receive, to take unto you, to bring close to yourself is really the idea here. So you see with this idea that when Jesus returns, he will be receiving his own to himself is very much a part of this concept, very much a part of what is going on. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18, we see this word used. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. So he was going to be putting her away from himself, to loosing her, releasing her, putting her farther away from himself, figuratively and uh, literally. But while he thought on these things, verse 20, Behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee... That's that word, take unto thee, marry thy wife, Paralambano, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. She shall bring forth a son. And he goes on to tell him why this is a good idea. So take unto thee here is that same word. So the idea of Joseph bringing his wife and making her, making her his wife, bringing her to himself, accepting her as she is and saying, yes, I accept what is going on here. It's of God. And I'm going to you know, marry her and, and complete everything that implies. That is the same word used here of when Jesus comes back to take away people in Matthew chapter 24, verses 40 to 42. This is why we know that Matthew 24, verses 40 through 42 is not talking about a destruction. It's not talking about a judgment to the people of God. It is talking about something happening right in those verses associated with his return of him gathering his own to himself, taking them in, bringing them close and intimate to himself. Luke chapter 19, verse 8 also mentions this word or uses this term, I should say, Matthew 19, verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore to him fourfold. That's Luke chapter 19 and verse number 8. Make sure I find which word we've got here. If I've taken, I restore... Uh, the word taken, I believe, is what we're looking at here. It's the idea of taking away something, taking away something from someone else. Uh, it's the idea of receiving to yourself. I did want to mention, I've got there for the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 22, verse 3, uses the same word, paralambano, or a derivative of it. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. And if we look there, that word for uh, he took with himself uh, when he takes his servants, that is paralambano. He took two of his young men with him is paralambano there. So it's the idea that he's bringing them with him. They're, they're accompanying him. So, of course, by association, we understand then when Jesus comes back to take away these people, these people that are getting taken away in this passage, it is a good thing. It is not a judgment to them. They're getting taken away to be with Jesus. So it's a very positive thing. He's coming back to reclaim his bride, which we'll talk about a little more. And, of course, this is referenced as well in Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. All right, so what about those who are left, those who are left behind? That's our word afiemi, which is uh, means to send, and it's an intensive form of amy, to go, to send forth. So they are pushed and placed behind, they are pushed back, uh, they are, there's not necessarily a lot happening to them, but by default, since they are not the ones taken, they are def definitively left. They are receiving nothing good, and no, no bringing near is happening between them and God. So they're being forsaken, as it says here, laying aside, leave, let, alone, omit, to send away, to remit, suffer, yield up. So they are not a part of this at all. This particular happening, this taking, this paralambano that's happening is only for the ones that Jesus is coming back to bring to himself. We have our word mill there. We already talked about it a little bit. It's our word mulan. Uh, I did notice it's interesting etymology, etymologically English 
word mill comes from the Indo-European mull for grind, and it's associated or connected to words like molar and meal. So our, our word for those teeth, that's what they do. They grind molars, meal, the idea of something you eat, you're grinding it up yourself, or it has been ground and made into a food for you. Uh, the word mill, all of those have the same root concept etymologically in English, so they're all associative. And so we understand those concepts are related. The word watch here, watch is gregureo, which means to keep awake, to watch. I've got an eagle there. If you're watching this on video, uh, the first thing popped into my head is eagle-eyed, you know, looking out and watching for this return watching for this event, to be vigilant and wake. The idea of watching and waking are actually the same word in English. Uh, being watching for something or watching something and being awake are the same, come from the same word. So they're the same concept, a prehistoric Germanic root, wakojan. So here Jesus is talking about watching here back in Matthew, Matthew chapter 24 and verse number 42, I believe. Watch therefore, when he says this, Gregorio, to keep awake to be vigilant, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. So in light of the fact that you could be doing anything normal and Jesus shows up and that's when this is going to happen means that we always have to be awake. We always have to watch. We always have to live in light of this concept. The word Lord there that he uses is kurios. It's from the word kuros, which means supremacy, means the supreme one in authority, uh, the controller, the master, almost always used to refer to God or Lord, master or sir. So that's who he's talking about. He's not talking about someone else coming. He's talking about himself returning for his children, for his own. All right. So I did grab uh, just a couple commentaries just to see what some the academics say about these uh, these verses. And I don't always reference commentaries, but when they have a little something to say, I like to throw it in there. Albert Barnes, I do like his commentary a lot. Here for verse 42, he mentions for the term watch, he says, be looking for his coming, be expecting it as it is near, as a great event is coming in an unexpected manner. Watch the signs of his coming and be ready. And the word there is therefore. Uh, in other words, in light of everything he said, watch out. Luke chapter 12, verse 39, he references here. Let's hop over there and take a look at that. Luke chapter 12 and verse number 39 says, And this know that if the good man of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not have suffered his house to be broken through. So there we see it mentioned as a negative thing because it's talking about someone being broken into. And Jesus, in the same event, and we'll talk about this more as we go along, in the same event of returning to gather to himself a good thing happening, he's also talking about ruining and corrupting and destroying someone household at the same time, uh, those who he is judging. So these are, these are part of the same event. And he's referencing as well Re Revelations 3 verse 3 and Revelation 16 verse 15. John Wesley's commentary, he has a commentary in the whole Bible and verse on verse number 40 in Matthew 24, he talks about one is taken into God's immediate protection and one is left to share the common calamities. So this thing happens at the same time. Someone's being protected and someone's being left behind to be judged or to receive all of the apocalyptic, you know, all the stuff that is coming. Our Lord speaks as having the whole transaction present before his eyes. So Jesus here, it's so amazing to think that this is the, the that's why this passage is so important to me and it's so integral to understanding eschatology is that Jesus himself, our Lord, Jesus Christ, is the one saying these things. Yes, he was the one saying these things in the book of Revelation as he spoke them to John to write down, but John was the one relaying them, and it's in a vision, and, and there's just there's a little more of separation between us and the message in the book of Revelation. However, here, Jesus was physically on the earth, he was physically talking out loud to his disciples and telling them these things. 
So the return of Jesus Christ, just to summarize everything that we've talked about today, it will take people by surprise. Both men and women at work will be finding themselves left behind and when he takes his children home. We've heard that term before uh, in reference to when people talk about eschatology, the rapture, all this stuff, they use that term left behind. Well, this is where that idea comes from, is that when Jesus returns to gather his own, anyone he does not gather will be left behind to suffer the fate that is coming to them. He will take his children home. We must remain awake and vigilant as we don't know when this will happen. Of course, several past, several verses before and after this talk about this idea of wait, waiting, watching, and we don't actually know when this is going to occur. So there's our summary there, and just as a matter of application, I wanted to make mention, the return of Jesus Christ to rescue his bride is imminent, it will be sudden. We don't know when it'll happen, it can happen at any time, and he says to watch and pray. Now I say any time, not meaning that other things must not occur in order for it to happen, but when it does happen, it will happen suddenly, it will happen in a way that there will be no prior warning, we're not going to get a, you know, 30 minute countdown for when the return of Jesus Christ is going to happen, as far as we're aware. There may be more information given to us as we approach that time. Time, but it is not going to be something that is uh, notified to the entire world to uh, to know, hey, tomorrow is the return of Jesus Christ. This is another way that you can tell false prophets and false Christs, false teachers, because they are constantly going to be pegging dates to this event. Uh, and that is something he is very clear here that he is not pegging a date to this event. There may be a way to determine, we'll talk about that with our timelines, to determine the approximate time and season, the year possibly even, and maybe even the month, the time of year when this is going to happen. But the actual day and the hour, as he's mentioned, is not something that has been revealed as of now. And unless the church worldwide, through the power of the Holy Ghost, is 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 given this information, we will not know it until the day it actually is happening. So, of course, the application is back in Mark chapter 13, verse 33, take ye heed, watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is. And we always must be watching out, keeping an eye for when our Lord will return. I wanted to thank you so much for watching, and I wanted to make mention of the previous episodes if you wanted to catch up on some stuff that we've talked about already. Of course, episode 11, we talked about the return of Jesus Christ as covered in this passage. Uh, episode 12 was the parable of the fig tree, some great, some really interesting stuff there, so I'd and Kyle encourage you to check that out. Episode 13, we covered the idea of this generation, Again, another often misquoted, misinterpreted passage, so I highly encourage you to check back on that in episode number 13. Episode number 14, talking about as it was in the days of Noah. What was he talking about when he said the days of Noah? What what specifically was he referencing? That is clearly laid out in this passage, and we talked about that in episode 14, which is our last episode, which was, I know, all the way back in November of 2021, but I highly encourage you to go back and listen to that one as well. So coming up and looking ahead for what we're going to be covering in the next couple weeks, Episode number 16 for next week is talking about the householder and the thief in Matthew 24, verses 43 and 44. Episode 17 is a faithful versus an evil servant. And then that finishes out this passage in Matthew 24. So episode 18, we'll be doing our timeline update. In other words, we'll be talking about the things we already know about the timeline as given by Jesus from the passages we've studied, which as of now is going to be Acts as well as Matthew 24, Acts 1 and Matthew 24. So we're going to put all that information together to talk through what this means for the timeline of the prophetic end days. And then in episode number 19, I'm going to do a themed uh, topical episode just covering all the counsel of the scriptures about this idea of the rapture and what is it. We've touched on it some already. I've expressed my opinion on that based on the scriptures already, but we're going to dig into it a little further and just go through the whole breakdown and what can be expected, what we know about this idea of the rapture or the return of Jesus as relates to the rapture in the scriptures. 
As always, thank you so much for watching or listening. Uh, of course, you can catch us everywhere, basically everywhere. You know, we've got, we're on Google Podcasts, uh, Apple Podcasts, on Facebook, on Spotify, on Anchor, on YouTube. Uh, please like and share this stuff. If you enjoy this, please leave a comment and subscribe everywhere you can. Leave us a rating if you're on Apple Podcasts. We would really appreciate it. And of course, you can always check out At A Church Radio. Our, this episode is part of our series called Eschaton, and those will be labeled as such. We've also got, uh, it's changing names, it was The Point, but now it will be called The Efficacy of Truth with Brother Woods. is coming out next week as well, and that's going to be on At A Church Radio. We've got a new podcast coming out here in the next week or two uh, called Think On These Things that will also be on there. So anywhere you look, just look up At A Church Radio or hashtag At A Church Radio, and you'll be able to find us where we are. You can also go to our website, atachurch.org or at a church.info, either one will take you to the same place and you'll be able to check out what we're doing and what God is working on doing here in Indianapolis through Antioch the Apostolic Church. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate you as always, and I will catch up with you again next time. You are listening to your apostolic radio at a church radio.